Have you ever heard yourself say something that the minute, not just the minute, but even before the minute is coming out of your mouth, you say, that is an absolute lie. But still, I'm saying it anyway. Even though the person you're saying it to is also clear that it's a lie for them. So you know that they know that you know. And they know that you know that they know that you know. But still, still the lie comes out. It's kind of like, uh, remember the Black Knight in Monty Python's The Holy Grail? It's only a flesh wound. That level of denial. That level of denial of reality. And telling on myself, it's the same kind of denial of basic reality, the concentration with reality that was so clear that I found myself engaging in several years ago on a transatlantic flight, a red-eye flight, to London. The plane was quiet, just that sort of noiseless humming of the engine and the drowsiness of all the other passengers around me. But in my head, there was a sound. It was the voice of Susie Salmon, who some of you might know. She's telling her story. The end of Alice Siebold's book, The Lovely Bones. Maybe some of you have read that a number of years ago. I'll describe it to you just briefly. It is Susie's story, and really in the opening chapter, when we first meet her, it's the only time we get to meet her that she is, quote-unquote, alive. She is assaulted and murdered. And the rest of the book occurs in her looking down from heaven. Her perspective upon all those lives that she has not lost, but the lives that she has left. And her compassion, her deep sense of hungering for the presence of those people that she loved, seeing their lives come apart for a time, come apart in some very painful ways because of her death, and also then towards the end of the novel start to be tentatively pieced back together into some semblance of wholeness. And it's at this point that I was when I told my lie. See, I was so intent as I was heading toward the end of the story that I didn't notice the flight attendant hovering over me and actually putting her arm around me in the chair, asking, is everything all right? Now, the reason she asked me this is that literally I was sitting with this open book on the tray table in front of me, wiping my eyes and wiping my nose with my sleeve. It was so evident that I was crying. Clearly, I was openly, openly weeping, but still the voice of false bravado. And I said these remarkably lame and absolutely transparently false words. I, I, I just have something in my eye. <laughs> the... the, the uh, the cabin is, is very dusty. It's making me allergic. And the flight attendant, she gave me one of these yeah, right looks and dropped a small packet of Kleenex into my lap. And before she headed on, she said, in case there's a few more dust clouds up here at 30,000 feet, these tissues might help you. And then she left me alone. Left me alone with my little idiotic lie, but left alone the way I wanted to be left alone so I could finish this beautiful story. And the reason that I was so openly moved a phrase and a feeling just at the very end of the book that stirred my heart to movement and my eyes to tears. Simple but profound. Susie's last words, looking down from heaven as she prepares to say goodbye and ascend to, as Alice Siebold pictures, I think it's a remarkable way to think of heaven. It's not some static place. She starts out at a certain level of heaven and after a while, because she's learned to let go, she's learned to say goodbye to all the people she needed to, She's ready to go to a different place, and we're not in the story going to get to follow her there. But she says these simple, profound, moving words to her family, the people she loved. I wish you all a long and happy life. 
I wish you all a long and happy life. Her last words. Her own acceptance is what she's saying. Her own acceptance that her place in heaven or the heavens to come, that's all right with her. She's where she needs to be. And that life will go on without her. And that she wants it to be full for those who are her survivors. She's able to let go of the ones she loved. They'll travel on their path and she will travel on her path. And she's able to be at peace with it. Kind of like Tom Hanks' dying words, if you remember them in Philadelphia, he says, I'm ready. I'm ready. There's something about the power of last words, especially at the end of a moving story, and even more because it's actually happening in our lives, at the end of a meaningful life. These last words, they concentrate our minds to full awareness, and they open our hearts to feeling. Maybe because we know that last words, well, they're not really last words. Because they are so powerful, they will continue to speak and resound, resound within us for years to come. Last words are rarely, if ever, the final statement on the meaning of a life. It's like Thoreau's last days. He was asked on his deathbed if he had made his peace with God, and he responded perfectly, I didn't know that we'd ever argued. So in keeping with Thoreau. But actually, his last words were a little bit more cryptic. They were moose and Indian. Evidently, he was working on a book, so the theory goes, he was working on a book about his time walking through Maine, and he was going to talk about some of the native peoples and also some of the animals he encountered. But that sense, that sense that he had, even as his life was starting to dim down, his last words, I didn't know we'd ever argued. So in keeping with the meaning of his life up into that point, it's kind of like Oscar Wilde in a different way, keeping with the meaning of his life up until that point, dying in a seedy hotel room in Paris. Reportedly, after surveying the decrepit room around him, he kept his famous wit sharp enough to say, either those drapes must go, or I must go. <laughs> you know, I guess we, uh, sometimes we get to, if we're lucky, we get to die as we live. The famous last words that really stay with us, they're not last, or at least they're not final because they begin a dialogue that continues with us for the rest of the time that we will be in this existence with each other. Most often our words, I find myself doing it. I find myself doing it when I think of my mom. I find myself doing it when I'm thinking of friends who I loved and I've lost. Our words to the dead go out as sort of almost an uttered prayer, maybe an aside to no one in particular, but they have an intent. They have a purpose. They sound like this. If only you could be here now, Dad, this celebration would be complete. I don't want to do. I need your help. I really screwed up, and I'm glad you aren't here to see this. It's been years since you've been gone, and the bed still seems too big without you. You wouldn't believe how the Cubs blew it this year. I hope they don't have ESPN where you are. And God help me, I still miss you, but not as much as I used to. And so I'm feeling a little guilty about not feeling so bad. And we also know that the words flow in the other direction as well. Not talking to the dead in the sense of channeling, although probably a little skeptical about that, but you know, there's a lot of weird stuff in this universe that can't quite be explained. But no, the sense of that internal dialogue that we carry our dead with us, in the same sense that Whitman said, we contain multitudes. Years ago, I was at a collegial gathering with other ministers, and there was one minister there, and he was from Puerto Rico, and he said what he was about to explain, it took some hesitancy in his part to admit it to a whole bunch of room of Anglos, because he didn't want to seem like the exotic foreigner. But he said his spiritual practice was communing with the spirits of his ancestors, 
that they held him honest to who he wanted to be. And I thought, what a great lesson in this incredibly mobile society to remember that we come from a place and that we come from a people and we are not cut off if we will take the time to remember this. There's a version of this in psychotherapy as well, or gestalt therapy. I don't know, maybe you have, some, maybe you have done it over the years. You write a letter to someone you know who has died. And then you continue that letter almost as if it's a chain. And you write back from that person to you. What would they tell you if they had the opportunity to? I don't think we have to possess any particular idea of the afterlife for this to hold deep power and resonance. Because maybe when we reach out to them, our dearly departed, they are still there. They tell us these things. We can hear their voices still speaking into our story. Are you still fighting with your brother about money? Every year you overcook the turkey at Thanksgiving and still your gravy has lumps. You know what the right thing is to do. You know what the right thing is to do. Now you just have to find the courage to do it. You think I haven't seen a tragic cub loss before? Get over it. It's okay for you to start to love someone else. Our beloved's last words are so powerful because they are a living benediction over our lives. They are literally, as the word benediction says, a good word, a blessing that sustain us and keep us. And it's these kinds of last words that are often so different of the way that we think of a last word. I think of George Costanza in Seinfeld. If any of you remember this particular episode, he had a, this sense, this fantasy that he wanted to fulfill where he would get in that last shot. Costanza was always trying to get in the last shot. He was a picture of mental dishealth, disease. He would say what he had to say, the last shot, the parting shot, the parting glance, and say, thank you and good night. And he would walk out of the room. In that way, he would be absolutely justified. The last shot, the last word, the last licks, that parting glance, knowing and thinking somehow that what we have said absolutely justifies who we are, that we will have won the argument and we will be right. It's kind of like that children's game that I know I used to play at camp or with my parents. You know, sometimes bedtime, as those of you who are parents know this, gets a little rowdy. You come in, you say, not another peep. You close the door behind you, and what's the next word that you hear? Beep! <laughs> well, that's, you know, amusing for a child and understandable because children sometimes have to live a lot of their lives with people telling them what to do. But the problem is that when this habit follows us into our adult lives, if we feel that we always have to get the last word, that somehow we have won the conversation, that only if we get the last word in have then somehow our words have been heard. I think this is really based upon a scarcity view of life that is only the one, sort of like the one who dies with the most toys wins, the one who gets in the last word really wins the argument. But our tradition, especially our universalism, says that there is a different model of living life. It is not to strive to get in the last word, but to keep the conversation going. This is one of the great differences between progressive religion and dogmatic religion that the last word in spirituality has not been spoken yet, that as long as we speak, it will continue to speak through us. That is the great difference, and it comes down to this question. And you have to answer this for yourselves, because even though you're here in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, maybe you're struggling with this. Maybe you say you want to believe it cognitively, but it's so difficult to practice. This question. Do you believe that life is an argument to be won, or a conversation 
to be continued, that life is on one hand an argument to be won or a conversation to be continued. So much of religious tradition, unfortunately, and so much of life has been geared towards the kind of faith that believes it has said the last and the best word about human existence, that Christianity has an argument that trumps Judaism, or Islam has an argument that trumps them both. I think, finally, that is not just a scarce way, but it's another version of that old childhood game of peep. I'm going to get my last word in here, and my last word will counter your last word. Now, of course, we know there's an infinite number of ways that this can be played out. Always, 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 there will be someone to speak after us and after each other. Our tradition says that this is healthy, that the number of words we can use to describe the beauty and the majesty and the story of this existence, that this is a basic fact of religious life. It is less about the argument and it is more about engagement. I think I first awoke to this years ago when I was college, I was a freshman and not really knowing what I wanted to do and I think I was a psych major and then I was a philosophy major and then I thought, well, I'll become an English major and I knew the day I'd become a religion major. I studied the words of Martin Buber who talked about the life of dialogue. He said there are two fundamental ways to live your existence. There is I, it, and I, thou. I, it is the world, perhaps we refer to it as the normal world. It's a world where, you know, most of the time we're trying to get what we want. The means to an end. They said there is a different, deeper, and higher level of existence. And he calls it the I-thou. It's the life of dialogue, the life of true engagement, where life is no longer an argument. It is about the sheer wonderful sense that we get to have presence with each other in this life. Now, I've told some of you this story before, but the best way that I can illustrate what the difference is between I-it and I-thou is to tell you the toll booth lady story that some of you know. About a month before I moved up here to take the helm of the church that would become Wellsprings, I was living a frantic existence. I was racing from one place to another and everything was boxes and packing and preparing and saying goodbye and it was just one big jumble. And I was going through a toll booth one day and you know there's no more I-it existence than paying someone to let you through. You know, we're just cogs in a wheel to each other in that time. And so I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm driving up, I'm 500 yards away, I've already got my hand outside the window to give the money so I can as quickly as possible. I didn't have a, a sun, sun pass, what they call it in South Florida. I didn't have one of those. So I'm saying, what can I do? What can I do to get on to the next thing? Move through move through this person. And there was a little bit of line in front of me and I'm cursing and saying, you know, come on, I got stuff to do. It's an important day for me. I got to move. And I got up. I got up to where the toll taker was going to take my money. And she looked me in the eye in a way that said, I think I better pay attention to this. And she said, how are you doing today, honey? How, honey? Me? <laughs> I'm just a money source. I'm paying my toll. I'm moving through. I said, well, you know, frankly, I'm a little bit you know, busy. I'm a little bit frantic. And she said, well, you know, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. It's I, it, becoming I, thou all of a sudden. I give her my money. I get my change. And she reaches over that chasm. I mean, that's a large chasm of I and it between where the money is taken and where the car is. Rarely do human beings actually exchange something meaningful there. And she reached over and she grabbed my arm, slightly, nicely, almost in the sense of laying on hands, almost in the sense of laying on hands. And she said, you take care of yourself today, you hear? That is I thou. That is I thou. That is when we are 
able to move from that world of saying, what will get me to where I want to go, to let me live in this moment. And it was her that awakened me to it, because I was fully stuck in the I-it mode. But every once in a while, the scales drop away from my eyes, and I'm able to experience it, and I'm so grateful for it. It's the ability to move beyond that need to get the last word, or the quick word, out. Because what happens when we do this is, of course, we neglect the needs of other people, and we reduce them to an object, someone to be turned around to our point of view. But more importantly, we neglect the needs of our own spirits. We may think that we get the last word, but after we leave the stage, it remains with other people. I have never done a funeral or a memorial service in which the person whose life was being celebrated was being celebrated because they got the last word. But I have done funeral or memorial services before in which it was very clear that life wasn't quite being celebrated because the person who was gone always needed to get the last word. And you know what? It's revenge time now. Because the people left over, the people who are holding some of those last words or that need to get the last word, they're going to have their say. We're all going to have our say. And what a horrible thing to complicate grief because life has been lived in such a way saying, it is my will versus yours. At times, even in religious traditions, even in dogmatic traditions, we take the time to recognize this. A couple weeks from now, in Passover, in the season of Passover, in the Seder, if any of you have ever been through a Seder before, there's a beautiful moment in which, in which during, as you go through the Haggadah, the sacred recitation of the story of the liberation of the ancient Israelites from Egypt, where what happens is the people gathered pour off a drop from the cup of their rejoicing so that we there recognize that even as it is a story of liberation, it came at the expense. I mean, think of the story. Think how horrible it is. The death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. They didn't do anything wrong. But there was such wisdom in that tradition that says, you know what? Simply because we win, quote-unquote, we don't get the last word. We need to remember that the story is more complex than just our ability to be winners. Dickens, who was not a Unitarian Universalist, but had Universalist and Unitarian sympathies, he said through the, this wasn't his belief, but he said through the words of one of his most odious characters, he said, in life there are beaters and cringers. Think about that. There are beaters and cringers. Now what Dickens really believed is that in the end love can save us all. He was a Universalist. But that sort of beaters and cringers understanding is that it matters that we get the last word. It matters that we get completely heard or what we think will allow us to be completely heard. But we know that this violates the greatest of all of the traditional religious virtues, which is humility. The recognition, the recognition that there is enough time for all of us to speak and there are enough words for all of us to share. In our community, here at Wellsprings, our seventh core value is really our most important. We talk about living with integrity. It says that we will honestly evaluate where we are in the hopes of courageously going where we are called to be. Of all, I tell you, of all our commitments to be a gathered community, this one is the most important. It keeps us from the temptation to want to get in the last word, to want to impose ourselves upon each other. It keeps us from the temptation to want to place a period where really what should be there is just a comma, just a next movement into the next piece of wisdom that we will realize. We will not guaranteed always agree with each other. That is impossible. 
but it means that we will strive beyond argument to truly understand one another. It's kind of like these ancient words that some of you might know from another tradition. The prayer of St. Francis. I'm just going to ask you just to take a listen to it for a second. It is an I-Thou way of living. O Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me pardon. Where there is discord, harmony. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sorrow, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned. This is a universal faith. This is a practice all of us can engage in. This is moving from I, it, I, thou. This is moving beyond the need to get the last word, recognizing that we never get it anyway, even if we think we do. Like Thoreau, who in his dying, dying days, we can say, the aim of life is not to win the argument. Perhaps we never quarreled at all. We wrestled and we struggled and sometimes we didn't know. But it's not to win the argument. We might then strive to be able to say that it is not the last words that matter but to speak into this life words that will last. A benediction, a blessing, a love offering, a gift back to this life. Amen. May you live in blessing.